Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. I want you to take a look in your closet. Are you the kind of person who won't throw out anything because you're positive, you're sure it's going to come back into style one day? Uh, I am. Long after this stuff has ceased sparking joy, for whatever reason, it's still hanging in my closet. I have these sport coats and suits that I paid good money for, and even though I haven't worn them for years, I can't bring myself to throw them out. Yeah, they look a little dated, but one day, maybe. You know, hope springs eternal. None of them are going to fit, but, you know, that's besides the point. For support, I look at my vinyl collection. There was a time when vinyl was considered nothing more than toxic landfill. The future is all digital, we were told. Free yourself from all those bulky, dusty, crackly vinyl records. Throw them out! Throw them away! Well, for some reason, I didn't fall for that. I kept my vinyl, and now that the format has been revived, I look like some kind of genius. Bottom line, though, is that even though many things in this universe come in cycles, we're not always sure when something old will become new again. At some point, you know, it seems that everybody enjoys some kind of a comeback, maybe a, a resurrection, a reestablishment, a, a reintroduction. But you can never rush these things, especially when it comes to music. Something has to happen where a significant number of people in different areas simultaneously come to the conclusion that it is definitely time to revisit some older music and to put a modern shine on it. This is what happened with garage rock at the very end of the 1990s and the early 2000s. After laying low for a couple of decades, it roared back so strong that it set the agenda for much of modern rock for years to come. Let's look at this. This is Alt-Rock Revival's Chapter 4, Garage Rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. I said, are you gonna be my girl? Out of Melbourne, Australia, and one of the biggest bands of the most recent revival of garage rock, that's Jet, and Are You Gonna Be My Girl from 2003. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and on this installment of our series on alt-rock revivals, we're going to look at how this form of music returned with a vengeance in the late 1990s. But before we talk about this, we need to define what is garage rock to begin with. Actually, that's pretty simple. It's the basic, raw, loose, ragged rock and roll you and your buddies play for no reason other than it feels good. Guitars, bass, drums, vocals, and maybe the odd bit of keyboard, often with a thin-sounding organ called a farfisa. It's often not exactly very sophisticated, and that's not a slag. Like I said, it's basic, it's primal, it's primitive. A couple of power or bar chords and you're away. And once in a while things might get just a little bit aggressive. You play it in the basement, in the rec room, and yes, out in the garage where you won't disturb too many people. Well, there are the neighbors. And it all begins with teenagers and amateurs and wannabes, some of whom became rather good and maybe even professional after a while. Some were good enough to play at parties and school dances. Others even made records. 
This is almost as old as rock itself. The roots of garage rock began in the early 1960s, when bands, inspired by the Beatles and the rest of the British invasion, started springing up like mushrooms. But it wasn't called garage rock back then. It was just rock. And its original era flourished between 1964, especially after the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan in February of that year, and sometime in 1968, when rock began to get more polished and complex. It's estimated that in the U.S. alone, some 184,000 garage bands were formed during those four years. There was no one sound for garage rock bands. Everything was very regional. For example, on the American West Coast, something that became known as surf rock popped up. This became a big deal in some circles in Southern California. What we had here was electric guitars with lots of reverb. And unlike just about everyone else, the guitars were intentionally distorted. Now remember, this was the time before guitar pedals and other outboard effects. The only way to get this gnarly sound was to screw with your guitars and amps in a way that immediately voided any warranty. And although vocals were later introduced, surf rock began as an instrumental thing, thanks largely to Dick Dale and the Deltones. This is an example of what early proto-garage rock sounded like. From 1962, it's Dick Dale and Miserlou. <laughs> Dick Dale and the Deltones from 1962 with an example of surf rock. Let me give you another example from the original era of garage rock. This is an all-time classic and probably the most famous garage rock anthem ever of all time for infinity. On April 6th, 1963, a bunch of dudes from Portland, Oregon, spent 50 bucks to record a cover of an obscure 1957 R&B song called Louie Louie, originally done by a Louisiana singer named Richard Berry. The session was held at Northwestern Motion Pictures and Recording. The producer was a local DJ on a Portland radio station called 91 Kissin'. He owned an all-ages club that featured the Kingsmen, which is the band we're talking about here, as the house band. You guys need to make a record, he said. So, on that day in April, the Kingsmen went into the studio and blasted it out in one take. So what we hear is the one and only time they played it in the studio that day. There were two crucial aspects to the arrangement of this recording. The beat was changed from 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4 to 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 1, 2, 3. Second, singer Joe Eli who was wearing big, heavy braces on his teeth, had to crane his neck way back and sing almost directly up into the single boom microphone hanging over everybody that was used for the session. So no wonder we can't make out what he's singing. One more thing to listen for. There is a mistake in this song. Just after the guitar solo, Eli comes in early. He thought, uh-oh, oops, and stopped. And that's when drummer Lynn Easton played an extra little drum fill to cover up the mistake. Today, when anybody plays the song, they play it with a mistake intact. This version of Louie Louie first became a regional hit, then a national one. And adding to the twangy, frat boy, good time, beer drinking feel of the song 
were the rumors that the lyrics were actually pornographic. Great urban legend that spread so much that Louie Louie was actually banned from radio stations. In fact, it was banned completely in the entire state of Indiana. I mean, how rock and roll is that? Kingsman with the awesome Louie Louie. Like I said earlier, tens of thousands of bands like them emerged out of garages and basements all over the world. Question Mark and the Mysterians, the Barbarians, the Trashmen, the Strangeloves. There was an all-female group from Nashville called the Feminine Complex. We can put the all-sisters trio, the Shags, into this category. Out of the UK, there were bands like the Kinks and the Pretty Things and the Who, even the Rolling Stones to a certain extent. Canada had Chad Allen and the Expressions, who later became the Guess Who. Toronto had the Poppers. There were also garage rock bands found in Mexico, Latin America, Japan, Southeast Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. And it was a really good run, but it had to come to an end. The original garage rock era ended around 1968, largely because of technology. Recording studios got better, resulting in more sophisticated recordings. And rock bands became more sophisticated, too, in their playing, in their live performances, in their songwriting and overall presentation. And then there was the rise of the album. Garage rock achieved its success through seven-inch singles. When it came time to record entire albums, they were much less successful. Rock also saw a big move to FM radio from AM, meaning that albums became the preferred format. Now, there were exceptions, of course. The MC5 the band that eventually became Alice Cooper, to name two. But in retrospect, the most important of the post-garage rock bands was Iggy Pop and the Stooges. They were drugged out, whacked out, and totally crazy. Perfect. Iggy Pop and the Stooges from their 1969 debut album. Very aggressive post-garage rock. But the truth is that this music was being left behind. That is, until a compilation was released in 1972. We'll pick it up there in a second. This is chapter four of our look at alt-rock revivals, and this time we're talking about garage rock and how it has kept coming back. It appeared that this whole sound was done by the end of the 1960s. Unless you were into groups like Iggy Pop and the Stooges, people had basically moved on. But then a very interesting compilation record came along in 1972. It was entitled Nuggets. The compiler was a guitarist named Lenny Kay, who worked at a record store in Greenwich Village in New York City. He was a big fan of this raw and sometimes sloppy rock and was able to convince Electro Records to release a collection of material issued between about 1964 and 1968. This double album did so much to memorialize and codify the entire garage rock era that it became required listening for anyone who was bored with the state of rock in the early 1970s. Many of these so-called Nuggets bands became heroes to the people who would soon create this new thing called punk rock. Here's one of those Nuggets bands. The Standells were formed in 1962 and recorded this song written about the heavily polluted Charles River in Boston. Well, I love that dirty water. 
classic 60s garage rock and one of the so-called Nuggets bands. Those are the Standells with Dirty Water from 1965. By the way, the writer of that song was Ed Cobb. A year earlier, he dashed off another song in 15 minutes that was released several times before it became a massive hit in the early 1980s when it was covered by Soft Cell. So, yes, Ed Cobb, the writer of Dirty Water, made famous by the Standells, also wrote the synth classic Tainted Love. The popularity of the Nuggets collection, combined with the rise of Iggy Pop and the Stooges and a few other like-minded bands, prompted the first garage rock revival, except now that it was being called punk. Actually, the word punk was used to describe some of these original garage rock bands from the 1960s. Some of these bands, like the Barbarians, who were from Massachusetts, dressed in black leather jackets, reminiscent of the motorcycle gang punks, portrayed by Marlon Brando in movies like The Wild Ones from 1953. The other thing about the Barbarians in particular was drummer Multi Moulton was missing his left hand. Instead, he had a hook. How punk rock is that? The Ramones were great admirers of these Nuggets bands, these 60s-era bands. And when you get right down to it, the Ramones were a combination of Phil Spector-type girl groups mixed with garage rock. And in the process, they eventually became inspirations to generations of people who just wanted to rock out. Here are the Ramones covering a great garage rock song, The Trashman, and their one and only hit from 1963. The Ramones, with their tribute to the Trashmen, a Minneapolis band that was part of the original garage rock era. So the punk rock explosion of the middle 70s was the first ever revival of garage rock. It was basically the same sort of thing, but louder, sometimes angrier, occasionally political, and often much faster. But the basic DNA was essentially the same. The Sex Pistols, The Clash, The Damned, all those groups are garage rock bands at their core because of their back-to-basics approach. After the punk explosion and its segmentation and stratification into many different forms throughout the 1980s, there was a minor revival in the late 80s and early 1990s. Now, sort of. This was the rise of what we would call garage punk. They were more stooges than Kingsmen, which meant that they played a lot louder and a lot faster than the originals. You might have heard of bands like The Headcoats and The Mighty Caesars and The Mummies, or maybe not. But I do know that you've heard of this band called The Five Six Seven Eights. This is an all-female trio that emerged out of Tokyo in 1986, taking elements of garage rock, surf rock, straight-ahead punk, and rockabilly, and releasing a number of albums and singles. Their biggest hit was a cover originally released by a rockabilly group from Richmond, Virginia called the Rocketeens in 1959. It was covered several times over the decades before it was picked up by the 5678s in 1996. Then it was picked up by Quentin Tarantino for the soundtrack of Kill Bill Volume 1 in 2003. But it remains an example of the minor garage rock revival of the mid-1990s. These are the five, six, seven, eights, and woohoo. Well, 
While the garage rock revival of the early 90s was a low-key affair, it persisted in an underground sort of way, kept alive by the overall love for alt-rock throughout the decade. And it was a small scene that helped fire out the biggest garage rock revival since punk. That part of the story is next. The late 90s was not a great time for alternative rock. Grunge had burned itself out. New rock, with its mix of hard and heavy rock with hip-hop, was very polarizing. And mainstream alt-rock seemed to consist of nothing more than a series of one-hit wonders. Plus, all rock was under assault. The rise of hip-hop, the rise of electronica and EDM, and most of all, the massive popularity of pop music. Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, Britney Spears, Spice Girls. If you were around in the late 1990s, you'll remember the despair felt by rock fans. It seemed that it was all over and nothing good would ever happen again. But then it did. And just like the punk of the 1970s, it started in New York. There were about half a dozen bands central to the garage rock revival in the 2000s. And the very first was The Strokes. They start with three preppy kids on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, sons of rich parents. Singer Julian Casablancas, guitarist Nick Valenci, and drummer Fabio Moretti. Later, Julian was sent to a private boarding school in Switzerland, where he met guitarist Albert Hammond Jr. Eventually, everybody made it back to New York, formed the Strokes, and started playing gigs on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, specifically at a place called the Luna Lounge, and at another venue called the Mercury Lounge. Interestingly, Despite the buzz, the Strokes could not interest any American labels in what they were doing. So they sent some demos to Rough Trade in the UK, and Rough Trade loved what they heard, so they signed them. The result was an album called This Is It, and when it arrived in July 2001, it got off to a slow start. But in the months following 9-11, things started to change. Overnight, it was suddenly very inappropriate to be into happy, dancey pop music. I mean, the whole world seemed to be coming to an end because of this unexpected black swan event that brought down the Twin Towers. And because music is always downstream from what's happening in society, the public's taste in popular music started to swing away from pop and back towards rock. Oh, one more thing too. Music is always driven by youth. The young people that started getting into music with pop in the middle 90s had aged into a time when they wanted something with more teeth, with more bite. And bands like The Strokes were there for the ticking. The second of the five indie rock revival pioneers of the early 2000s was The White Stripes. Jack Gillis, a Detroit-area upholsterer and indie musician who almost decided to become a priest, met up with a bartender named Meg White. They not only got involved romantically, but they also started jamming on some of Jack's music. He played guitar and also taught her how to play drums. This seemed to work, so they booked a gig at a place called The Gold Dollar, a bar in Detroit. And the date for that was August 14, 1997. From there, they ingratiated themselves into the Detroit and Michigan underground indie scene, all of whom who had something in common with Motor City ancestors like the Stooges and the MC5. Within two years, the White Stripes had a deal with a label called Sympathy for the Record Industry, which was held in very high esteem by members of the indie community. That led to a debut self-titled album in 1999, 
which, like the Strokes' first record, found its initial love in the UK. The White Stripes were garage rock, punk, a little bit of metal, a smidgen of country, a lot of blues from the 20s and 30s, and even a little jazz. It wasn't long before critics were going nuts over this stripped-down, back-to-basics approach to music. Sound familiar? The White Stripes from their White Blood Cells album released just three weeks before The Strokes came out with their debut album. So, good timing in retrospect. I'm also going to mention the Von Bondies as our third garage rock revival band. They were also from Detroit and were alternately friends and rivals and enemies of the White Stripes. The two principals in the band were Jason Stolsteimer, a bartender at a bowling alley, and Marcy Bowen, who was working in a hair salon. The first name was The Baby Killers when they got going in 1997, but were known as the Von Bondies by 2000. And they, too, were signed by Sympathy for the Record Industry, just like the White Stripes. And just like the Stripes and the Strokes, the first territory to pay close attention was the UK. The Von Bondies toured with the White Stripes and other young garage rock bands. And Jack White co-produced the first Von Bondies album. It was called Lack of Communication, and things peaked for them around 2004 with their second album, Pawn Shop Heart, which included this alt-rock radio hit. The Von Bondies with Come On, Come On, with the White Stripes and a few others, they formed the core of the Detroit garage rock revival of the early 2000s. The next garage rock revival band on our list takes us back to New York. Singer Karen O. met drummer Brian Chase at college in Ohio in the late 1990s. When they transferred back to New York, they ran across photographer Nick Zinner, who also played guitar. They called their first band Unitard, but then pivoted to the kind of music Karen O. heard while in Ohio. That was in large part the trashy, punky garage rock coming out of Detroit, 140 miles up Interstate 90, and also 35 miles east on Highway 10 in Cleveland. And just an hour away was Akron, the original home of Christy Hind and the Pretenders, and the home of the Black Keys. So yes, Karen would have had to have been into the White Stripes and the Von Bondies and the Stooges and the MC5 and the Pretenders and a whole bunch of other bands. Unitard was renamed the Yeah Yeah Yeahs and soon found themselves touring with the White Stripes and the Strokes. And then, in 2003, they released a debut album which was not only a critical hit, but also sold around a million copies worldwide. This was the big hit from the record. It's called Maps. The Yeah Yeah Yeahs from their debut album Fever to Tell and Maps. Okay, two more bands we need to talk about when it comes to the garage rock revival of the early 2000s. We have The Hives. They are Swedish and were formed in 1989. But in 1993, there was a big pivot in their sound to something very garagey. Nothing much happened for the rest of the decade, but in 2000, they released their second studio album. They called it Vini Vidi Vicious and were almost immediately swept up by label owner Alan McGee. Now, you might remember him as the founder of Creation Records and the guy who discovered Oasis. 
By 2000, Alan McGee had a new label called Pop Tones, and he wanted the Hives, so he signed them. One thing led to another, and suddenly the Hives had a major label deal that some said was worth $50 million. Okay, believe that if you want, but there's no denying that this track is an amazing slice of modern garage rock. Swedish garage rock, the hives, and I hate to say I told you so. All right, one more highlight from the garage rock revival from the early part of this century. And here we have the Vines. They were formed in Sydney, Australia in 1994, when singer and guitarist Craig Nichols and bass player Patrick Matthews met while working at their local McDonald's. Both were huge fans of Nirvana and wanted to do something like that. Specifically, the parts of the Nirvana canon where Kurt stripped everything down to the basics. Nothing happened for a long time, but by 2001, they had about three dozen songs. They put out a single, which got them noticed, and later that year, they were in L.A. recording their debut album, and that record came out on July 14, 2002. So this meant that the Strokes, the Stripes, the Von Bondies, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and the Hives all had records in the marketplace at exactly the same time. So, critical mass. The garage rock revival just kept going, and suddenly, in the midst of all this, the Vines... The Vines would get free from 2002. There were plenty of other garage rock revival bands waiting to be discovered in the early 2000s. Back at the beginning of the program, we heard Jet, obviously big fans of Iggy Pop. There were the Datsuns out of New Zealand. From the Pacific Northwest, we had the Brian Jonestown Massacre. The Libertines came out of London, England. Outside of London, we found the Subways, the International Noise Conspiracy from Sweden. And later came Ty Siegel, Jay Riotard, the Black Lips, and the Black Keys. Garage rock seems to be an underground thing that is always there, something that's always bubbling up into the mainstream in unexpected ways at unexpected times. It's lasted a long, long time, so there's no reason to believe that it will ever go away. It's just waiting there, biding its time for the next revival. On the final chapter in this series of alt-rock revivals, we're going to look at how New Wave, that spiky sort of post-punk thing from the 1970s, returned in an interesting way in the 21st century. And like all other revivals that we've talked about, the new practitioners took some old ideas and put a new spin on it. If this show does it for you, there are hundreds of podcasts available for the asking. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that has podcasts and download everything for free. Please rate and recommend if you can. You can also locate me at my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. There are playlists for all these programs there. I hope you can sign up for the daily newsletter, which is also free. Look for me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And I will always write back if you write me through email, alan at alancross.ca. Part five of Alt-Rock Revivals next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back.